Howdy, PHR Sears. You can find every episode of Why People on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever else you get your podcast content. On this Why People episode, episode number three, we'll talk to Alex Lawrence, the Chief People Officer of the City of Boston, who has one of the coolest backgrounds you'll ever hear in the HR and people executive space. Let's do it. Hello and welcome to Why People, a BHRC production. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, the Boston HR Council is the largest HR and people executive community in the world at over 1,500 uh, HR and people executives. Um, I'd like to introduce uh, co-founder of the BHRC and co-host of Why People, Paul Roberts. Thank you, Sean. Happy to be here. Alex, wonderful to have you. All right. And, so and happy to be here today. Yeah, now happy to introduce uh, our guest today, uh, Alex Lawrence, who's the Chief People Officer of the City of Boston. Uh, a really cool guest and, and really excited to have this conversation, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. You're too kind. Yeah, so we're we're excited, Alex. So we'll we'll kind of dive right into it. The, the, the cool part about why people, I think, is we, we always follow the same kind of conversation cadence, but obviously everyone is is uniquely different in in the role, so... Uh, their journey is uniquely different. So we'll we'll just start, Alex, um, and, and happy to get into kind of your um, your unique path to that chief people officer role. But um, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about kind of you as a person, your background, you know, where you're from, all that fun stuff. Wonderful. Thanks so much. So yeah, I'm Alex Lawrence. Um, I am the city of Boston's first ever chief people officer, uh, which is truly an honor. And I pinch myself every day to, to think that that is a role that I hold. Um, I think I like to think of of myself as somebody who is just like a, a uh, you know, on my best days, a, a bureaucratic transformer. Uh, so I feel like every organization I've worked for could be described as uh, large and bureaucratic, um, but I think the word bureaucracy gets a terrible rep. Uh, and actually, um, I think in general, right, like processes and doing things in large, complex organizations is a skill in and of itself. Um, and so I think everything I've sort of done throughout the course of my career has really led to uh, just being someone who likes to think about how we make processes and systems function for people in the context of large organizations. Uh, and this job is no exception. Awesome. I, I love the background, Alex, and knew this was going to be a really fun conversation. So so with that background, Alex, um, and I, I love kind of how you outlined um, the role or, or, or kind of the work. Could you tell the Boston HR Council just a little bit about your um let's start with kind of your educational background you know how you how you were classically trained shall we say sure yeah so uh, my undergraduate degree is in sociology actually if i start a little while back i remember in eighth grade i took one of those career tests and it told me like in eighth grade you know ran a bunch of questions that you're either going to be a psychologist or in human resources 
And I was like, okay, like human resources, that sounds really interesting. Um, and then I feel like as I learned more about HR and real, like I thought, oh, this is this is where you make organizations help humans. And, you know, I think as I learned more about that in real life, I realized that was not necessarily the reputation that HR had in, in real life, uh, that it was really, you know, this idea of of being uh, compliance driven and, and protecting, you know, a company from its people, um, I think is sort of what the, the rep I learned later on. Um, and so it's funny, I did not, uh, none of my classical training is in human resources and feels like a really full circle moment to have landed here. Uh, but um, that that was a long way of saying, you know, graduated undergraduate in in sociology um you know really was just focused on the idea of having a career which like impacted systemic inequality uh, started my career in in big nonprofits in the city of Boston actually the first ever job um I got I was laid off from uh 40 of us were laid off during um what were the I'm going to totally age myself very specifically but whatever there's no real way to tell the story without doing this um the uh economic recession of 2008 and so basically every single friend I had who graduated college in 2008 we were all laid off from our first jobs um and I was working for this uh, Bay Cove Human Services uh which is a really important mental health organization in the city of Boston. Um, and basically, because of government funding cuts, uh, they had to balance the state's budget. And so a whole bunch of us got laid off. Um, I then ended up working for ABCD, Action for Boston Community Development. So another really longstanding um, historical nonprofit that does incredible work for uh, the low-income population of the city of Boston. Um, and the reason I tell this early story was so much of what I learned in these in this early time was sort of the idea that our organizations that are out there to help our most vulnerable populations are completely reliant on government funding and these structures that are completely without the organization's control. So in ABCD, we received the federal stimulus money at the time. Uh, we took an organization of 1,000 employees. We grew it to 2,000 employees. We shrunk it back to 1,000 employees uh, two years later. Um, and there was just so much that we were doing to basically chase the dollars and so much of our organization that couldn't really be invested in because of the nature of that. So, you know, when I was there, we still used uh, paper time cards. Uh, we had uh, sheets that had telegram expenses on them. And so I really sort of both fell in love with the like business idea of how do you turn a big ship and the overall public policy idea of like, how do you make these organizations that are dedicated to vulnerable populations function through a funding reality? So I was torn between do I get an MBA and really think about the organizational side or a public policy degree and think about the public policy side, um, ended up going the public policy route, um, went to the Harvard Kennedy School, got um, my master's in public policy there. Um, and during my time at the Kennedy School, uh, ended up taking really thought about local government, thinking about the like thinking about these this idea of funding and these like organizations that can stand and serve our um, our vulnerable populations. And so I took a fellowship about uh, that was basically about creating innovation in um, in local government, specifically at the city of Boston. Um, it, my project that summer was really about technology transformation. And so then when I graduated with my master's in public policy, um, I ended up spending 10 years in the city's innovation and technology department, um, starting with managing sort of small pro uh, a rehaul of the city's permitting and licensing processes, ending up working on much larger things like how the city responds to constituent needs and the technology that underlies. But most of what I just was working on is, is systems change. How do you make big, clunky, interoperable like systems, not just in the technology sense, but in the people and process sense, function and serve serve the people they're attempting to serve. Um, and so ended up, uh, yeah, did, did that work for a long time, ended up moving up through management, was the chief of staff of the IT department, 
Um, and then to make the sort of end of this long story short, uh, ended up um, leaving the city for a whole host of reasons after COVID, mostly uh, burnout related um, and just needing to, to take a little bit of a step back um, and ended up working for a digital services consulting firm. And then basically uh, the mayor, when Mayor Wu, who's the current mayor of Boston, was elected, uh, she asked me to come back. Um, I came back in the interim CIO role. Um, and that's when, you know, I had said sort of throughout COVID through these last few years in, in the workforce, I was just incredibly interested in the idea of not just how do we create systems that work for people, but how do we become an organization um, where we're talented keep people can can learn and grow and succeed and be retained. Um, and so much of what I had seen throughout uh, the 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 organization um, was that, you know, everyone there was really, really well intentioned um, and we had incredible public servants, but that the structural pieces that that um, that made this the best place to work had, had a lot of room for improvement. Um, and so at the time we had what was known as an administration and finance cabinet. So all of the city's HR and people functions orged up through the CFO. Um, and essentially, you know, we talked about the idea of really breaking those apart, not because, you know, the financial health of the city isn't extraordinarily important, um, but because as, as probably many of the private sector organizations and, and people have realized over time, they're really having, um, in my case, human resources as well as labor relations, having a seat, strategic seat at the at the executive table to really drive uh, the vision of the organization and make sure that we can create the conditions for for workers to to thrive um, is so important. Um, and so the mayor created the People Operations Cabinet, uh, the first ever of of its kind for the city, um, and basically broke out some of those functions out from underneath the CFO and created this new cabinet position and. Um, somehow I'm in it. And it's been an incredible journey. Um, and just really, really, you know, I, again, I had I had done a lot of HR in previous roles in management that I'd had growing up, but uh, growing through the organization and done a lot of work on the labor side. Um, but now, yeah, I'm leading, leading the structural part of it. Yeah, I mean, such a cool journey, Alex. And I remember when we first got connected, um, geez, almost two years ago now, um, the first thing you said to me was, I'm I'm not really a traditional HR executive. That was kind of how you led, and and my question was, oh, could you tell me a little bit more about that? And and we, uh, it, you kind of gave me that background, and I, I just I've been blown away by it. So thanks for sharing, Alex. And and for those folks, um, th those listeners and viewers that don't know, would you mind kind of situating us with with the actual size? of uh of the city of boston from an employee standpoint and and just even over your purview from an hr and people ops standpoint yeah so it's it's complex and we are you know i think a relatively decentralized organization uh, so the city of boston sort of if you think about it as the most broadly defined which includes quasi-governmental agencies um has about um a, a workforce of of nineteen thousand. um that includes you know schools Police officers, firefighters, um, uh, you know, at, at finance, like libraries, you know, huge, a huge purview. Uh, it also includes 47 different collective bargaining units. So when you think about the organized labor context, um, 47 unions is a lot. Probably not going to be a lot of people who have that sort of size and complexity there. Um, but the so I have sort of general oversight over over all of that. Um, but in terms of sort of who I'm not like very actively responsible for running a payroll for making sure that like, you know, all the policy is set for, um, you know, we have some quasi structures. So that's, a, that's about a population of 8000 um, sort of city of Boston proper if you don't include the schools and you don't include the quasi governmental agencies. Sure. That's helpful, Alice. And, and how about in your uh, in your kind of department in, in the HR function? 
so yeah, in the HR function, we're talking about uh, 70 people, the labor function about um, 10 people. And then I also sort of randomly uh, in that sort of administration finance breakup that I described in the divorce, I also uh, attained the registry department, which is the city's uh, vital record. So think of birth, death and marriage certificates that also works up to me. I mean, just thinking about that reminds me of watching Paul uh, chase his whole family around and trying to coordinate everyone uh, kind of at the same time. Uh, it, it must be a lot of work coordinating that um, that dance, Alex. Definitely. But I've been able to, I think part of this, bringing the sort of this, the people operations to the strategic cabinet level, I've been able to hire just like a truly incredible team that obviously, you know, makes, makes this work. Um, and we've been able to bring in some more uh, capacity building strategic roles before it was basically like, you know, a department head and then everyone else was just doing ops. And so we have very, we've had very little ability to invest in in more sort of like strategic planning roles. I think most of the functions that we do here, you know, in our organization, you might see one person do it for the scale in a private sector company. You might have 10 people uh, doing just like thinking about the thing, whereas we have like maybe half a person thinking about the thing and a few people doing the thing. Are you able to uh, go out to dinner in Boston and not be recognized or is it? Oh, definitely. Yes. I'm not being recognized by the public. I, I know HR celebrities are really big, but you know, not, not, not. Well, I don't know. After this podcast, I might change. <laughs> well, well, Alice, it's, so that's a super helpful background for us to kind of, you know, dive into the conversation here. And, and kind of where I want to move to now um, is, is how you're thinking about, um, the the people in HR function currently, and and I'm interested because you know your, your background is so unique. Um, you've been a part of you know so many different projects and initiatives and 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 moving things forward. So as you as you think about the role right now, and you don't need to necessarily speak specifically to to your role at City of Boston, um, but just you know how are you thinking about it, and and, and how do you approach it? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think anyone who is reading the news carefully uh, or maybe even not that carefully understands that, you know, in, in, in the moment that we're in coming out of the pandemic and and in, in a sort of modern workforce reality with the labor market, you know, I think recruiting and retention is hard everywhere. I think layering government on top of that really is a, a, a double challenge. Um, there are tons of constraints um, that I think are unique to government and very good reasons why, you know, government is built to last. So it is always going to take a long time to turn a big ship when everything is prioritized towards government lasting. And all of that is a good thing. But it means that changing and being reactive um, or responsive rather to the world is challenging in the best of times. And so, you know, I think if anyone has read about, uh, you know, all, this is not like none of these challenges are unique to unique to Boston, unique to my organization, um, or even unique to government. But I think they're really emphasized here. So really, truly, it is not just thinking about, for me, how we get good people into government. It's like, how do we make government a good place for people to work? Um, and I think we have, in so many ways, so much I, I, so much going for us in government and we need to just be really really like way better at telling that story about why government is a credible place to work i think you know in 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 generations ago people understood the the huge value of the stability of government jobs especially in like an inflationary economy understood the benefits of a long-term but you know if you work for the city of boston you pay into a pension system um there are 
a lot of people sort of sneer and point their nose up at that concept because it means you have to stay a pretty long time to see the the value. But if you do see the value, it's it's a pretty valuable thing. Um, and I think there are just like there are tons. I think it's both how do we make our organization a, a great place for people to grow and thrive and, and succeed in their careers, but also how we better tell the story that that is a thing they can do if they come and work for the city. So, so much of what I'm working on is really figuring out how we tell that story. And it's interesting, Alex, you know, you was you kind of assuming the the first ever chief people officer um, position for the city. Um, it's not like you were walk, walking into City Hall for the first time. I mean, essentially, I, I know you, you took a, um, you know, you, you did some consulting in between um, your your previous role with the city. But essentially, you, you kind of walked down the hall uh, and, and, and took a new office. So a, a question is, um, having so much familiarity with the city and city hall was there anything or or maybe what was the most striking thing that in this new role kind of made you say "Uh aha or or, geez i I never realized that or i never noticed that yeah so i think that the truism that for me rings so so true in this job but honestly in in any role i've had in the context of government is like it is super easy to look on the outside and be like what idiot thought this thing was a good idea or, you know, just be really snarky about the way things are. And I still am, you know, that on my less, less good days. Um, But I think fundamentally, like a truism that I've seen is like almost every single decision that you look around and you see, you know, any vestige of something where you're like, why is it that way? Was a smart, thoughtful person who made a really good decision based on the resource constraints and the knowledge they had at the time. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't change it, but not at all. Um, but but, you know, I think especially with some of the things in 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 some of our hiring processes that have a ton of steps or are sort of like bureaucratic checks and balances, it might mean that we overbuilt for an edge case like, you know, some bad thing happened and we we made it more complicated for everyone as a result of that bad thing. But usually there's a very good reason. And so I think it's a question of like, how do we take those, you know, those 10 percent edge cases where something went wrong and like not overcorrect um, and move back towards just in general, making it more easy and accessible for more people while mitigating those possible, uh, you know, the compliance pieces that I said that HR had that reputation, right? There's good reason why it has that reputation. Those things are important. Um, but I think really just bringing that, bringing that more sort of like building towards the the more common use cases um, and having our processes uh, be able to handle exceptions differently is, is fundamentally um, a huge core of what I do. So anyway, that was a very long way of saying, um, a very long way of saying fundamentally that uh, the thing that surprised me is like, I expected to be like, oh my gosh, why is everything this way? And there, and there's a lot, there's a lot better reasons why things are this way. Again, that doesn't mean they're not right for innovation or change. Um, but, you know, like I said, it's not usually a bunch of uh, idiots making bad decisions. Well, well said, Alex. And in I, I, we've chat. I, I also have a, a nonprofit and municipal background, so I, I appreciate that the the thought there. Um, and and you did a great job earlier um, in the in the conversation, kind of outlining. I wouldn't even say that they're challenges; they're just more re- realities of of the work and of the you know of the industry. Um, as as someone as tech forward as yourself. Um, was there anything that was an easy change or, or, or something that, that you were able to kind of make modern, you know, almost right away when you, when you kind of got into the seat? Yeah. So it's funny as I feel like as a technologist or for 
I am more skeptical about the promise of technology to solve people and process problems than I would be otherwise. Um, almost always, it's not about buying, you know, especially in this complex context, like a fancy software that's going to automate it, a thing. It's about like having shared understanding of what a process actually is and having the humans inside of the organization trained on that thing. Um, but I do think there's a lot that overall the sort of like civic technology space and frameworks um, can provide in the human resources context. And a lot of that is the concept, I think, of like, I think put most simply, user research. Uh, it's really easy to assume in our case users or job applicants or our current employees that we that we know what they want because we've seen certain edge cases, but that is always going to be biased by the things we've personally experienced or the people that we meet. Um, so one of the most exciting things that we've done uh, recently and are still uh, just finalizing this initiative is we hired a specific user research firm to help us reach some job applicants um, who haven't applied for government jobs, right? Because we only know the people who are already in our process. We don't know the people who aren't considering us because of a perception they have, et cetera. And we have learned so much from this engagement. Um, I think just so much about um, how we can demystify what it might mean to consider one of our jobs. And so I think we, you know, we have visibility into, oh, it takes too many steps to approve a job requisition, et cetera. But there are this whole host of other things that we um, we don't directly have visibility because it's like who's not coming to the door um, that I think borrowing from the idea of like actually going to talk to real humans and doing user research that that is what product managers think about and what technologists think about that has been super useful in our context. Well, that's 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 great. And it sounds like quite the quite the exercise that, that you all went through. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there are professionals who do this and they've been super helpful. So, Alex, uh, a question. Um, how much or how great does your city of Boston general knowledge and factoid knowledge need to be to be the, the first ever chief people officer of the city of Boston? I think it certainly helps, right? And again, it goes back to that sort of like, it's super easy to, it's easy to identify low hanging fruit. It is hard to determine which of that low hanging fruit is best, is the most valuable of your time, right? There's a lot of things I could touch and make better because as I said, I think this whole piece of the organization has been chronically uh, under-resourced for a pretty long time and not really given the attention that it needs. And so I'm super excited to be doing that. But I think my specific knowledge coming in is like, I know what it feels like to be a department, which is a core end user. I know what it feels like to be an employee. Um, and I have a lot of understanding of how our pretty complex uh, bureaucratic processes work. Um, so it certainly doesn't mean I know everything or that my ideas are right. But I often say in this organization, it takes a year before you literally know what's up or what's down. Uh, so I have a pretty significant head start. That's that's great, Alex. All right. So before we kind of transition into the conversation around, you know, what we think is next or, 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 or what you're thinking about for the future, you did kind of highlight a little bit about the, the city's hiring and an open position so just and maybe maybe this is a shameless plug but curious um what what roles um are are open right now that maybe the common person like paul and i that, that maybe haven't checked the city of boston john board in the last couple of weeks would be surprised that they're there just curious about that type of you know conversation sure yeah happy to happy to take the shameless plug wherever i can get it um i you know i think um one key place that we saw a lot of attrition um, in the last 
you know, several years was specifically in our key administration and finance roles in departments. Uh, so, for example, our uh, human resources director for the Boston Police Department has been open for a pretty long time, uh, one that we're really actively recruiting for. Um, the uh, a senior director of administration and finance in our age strong uh, department. So think of that as every everybody who um, supports the elderly population of all Boston. So all of the programming that goes to the elderly population, uh, you know, we have a commissioner, but then we have a really important senior role of, of administration and finance who's writing grants and also overseeing HR and labor relations for that department. Um, so, you know, we're again, we're workforce of 17,000, 19,000, you know, depending on how you how you uh, slice it. And so, you know, it's a conglomeration of a ton of departments, which are functionally in some ways, you know, they could be the libraries itself uh, is a I think we're hiring a CFO there is a, a 600 person organization. So it's a it's a pretty big, sizable organization um, with, you know, I think overseeing some of the coolest functions of the city if you um, are into libraries. Uh, so, you know, I think I think each individual job like there's if you there is so much to be passionate about. Um, and we basically have uh, a function that does almost every kind of job you can imagine. Uh, so, you know, we're to, like today we're hiring locksmiths and we're also hiring uh, street engineers and we're hiring an A&F professionals. Um, so I, I personally think lots, lots to be excited about there. Yeah. It, it sounds like it. And, and Alex, um, you know, just in, in, in conversation here, we can hear the the passion in, in the work and in, in the in the opportunity um, in, in the city. So you have to tell us when you do get the opportunity to not be working. Tell us a little bit about uh, about how you enjoy yourself or maybe how uh, how you decompress with with a lot of these moving parts. Absolutely. Um, so I have two uh, two small children. Uh, I have a uh, I don't know if hanging out with them necessarily counts as decompressing. Uh, I've got a three-year-old and a five-and-a-half-year-old, um, but they are incredible and so much fun um, and certainly keep me busy and on my toes. So, you know, in the, like, general practice of free time, I wouldn't say I am swimming in it per se, um, but obviously I love spending time uh, with, with my family. Uh, my husband's also a public servant. He works at the MBTA. Um, so, you know, we're, we're really, really strong in the local government um, in my household. Um, and so, you know, made sure our kids are obsessed with uh, trains and buses, um, which they are both obsessed with. Um, yeah, and we love hanging around the city um, and cooking is a passion of mine. Um, love food in, in, in all ways. Yeah, I don't know. I don't have a t like if, if I had spare time, I also really love board games, but it's been a while since I've been able to do that personally. We, uh, we, we hear you loud and clear. Uh, Alex, uh, Paul and I both have kids in that age range, so everything you just outlined is 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 perfectly enough for uh, when you're yeah. when you're not on right <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm getting pretty good at cameoing right now <laughs> exactly um my daughter is obsessed with the fairy game so plug for that board game if anyone likes it what's amazing about that one um is it's a uh cooperative game so you're beating the board which i think helps with um my uh five-year-old's inner competitiveness it's not being <laughs> taken out against anyone yeah i like that well, well, Alex, that, that, that's great, and and it's good that that you have that outlet with such a you know a um an important and, and kind of a busy job you know uh, leading the the people function for the city. As we kind of think about moving into the future, maybe just a spot to start. Um, you know, what do you think most about um relative to um the workforce or the workplace as you kind of you know look into the future, 12, 24, 36 months. 
Uh, yeah. So, so much to think about here. I really think it is, um, is just figuring out how we become a more human-centered organization. Um, and, you know, I know that that word has a lot of meanings and I don't really love the term about like bringing your whole self to work because I think, you know, I think a workplace is a workplace fundamentally, but being able to bring your authentic self to work might be a more a better way of saying it. Um, so really just becoming a place where people can can sustain and grow their careers, um, which I think we do really, really well in some some places and in other places we have a lot of room to grow. Um, so one of the most exciting things that we've done relatively recently was launch employee transit benefits. Um, so giving people really heavily subsidized access to uh, public transportation, um, as well as making um, biking. So we've made blue bikes free for all of our employees. Um, so just helping uh, basically ease sort of financial burdens, but also encouraging mode transportation changes. Um, and I think in the coming in the coming months, um, we're going to be thinking a lot more about that, thinking about how to help employees uh, with housing challenges. Um, we're also in the process of basically renegotiating. Uh, so when when Mayor Wu took office, as I mentioned, we have 47 collective bargaining units. Every single one of those contracts had expired. Uh, so we've done a yeoman's effort getting uh, almost all of our employees under contract. We still have a ways to go there, um, but we are already in our next round of negotiations to closing additional contracts. Um, so basically that that also just, you know, figuring out how we meet employees what they are, where they are, listening through our collective bargaining process to what employees want. Um, that is a tremendous tremendous amount of work um, that our, our labor team and our managers are focused on each and every day. Um, so a ton of work there. And then I think, um, you know, it might be surprising for people if you think about, you know, government bureaucratic organizations, you would think that, you know, we're going to have all of these processes that are super complicated and convoluted. And that is in some ways true. But a lot of our policies are not, in fact, written down as as clearly as you might think that they are. Um, and so a lot of them exist in, you know, handbooks that haven't been updated in a really long time. So I think a really core focus of our upcoming 12 months is figuring out not only how do we um, make our policies more accessible and visible to folks, but we write them in more human-centered language uh, so that people can understand it. Um, I think HR policy tends to sound like it's written by lawyers because it is, um, and lawyers are great and we need them, but also there are ways to make those policies understandable to humans um, while still being uh, stamped of approval uh, from the lawyers. Yeah, what what's the term now, Alex? T T L semicolon D R. Exactly. Too long didn't read. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So every policy should have a T L D R. Give me three bullet points. And you know, lawyers are not a huge fan of that because there's lots of. And again, I sound like I'm hating on lawyers. I'm not. There's incredibly important work that lawyers do, but like often we can summarize things in a way that is helpful. So for I think one of the again another one of the things I'm super proud of is we made some updates to our paid parental leave policy, um, which was awesome and and became a little bit more generous and closed some loopholes. Um, but even more proud of than the changes to the policy that we made um, when we rewrote the policy, we accompanied it with a beautiful well-illustrated guide that explained to people how they could use their leave benefits. And the city had never, at least to my knowledge, really done that, where we accompanied a policy change with something that people could really use and understand. And you could say, okay, well, if I take these weeks, this is how it impacts. You know, things that just like, when you read a 20-page document don't come through, but you look at a graphic that was made by a designer and you're like, oh, that makes sense. I understand how to use this thing. Um, so I think that talks a lot to our approach. Um, and that was an example where we did that really well and hope to continue to do that. That that's a great example, Alex, and, and it brings me to a, another question. Um, and and I think it's relative to this kind of future conversation. But looking back on kind of your growth through the city of Boston, you know, as an employee, is there is there anything 
when you look back to your previous 10-year career with the city, that now as the the leader of the of the people in HR function, you're you're able to say, because I have that experience as a in probably the wrong term here, but as a rank and file employee, yeah. I now know that that this is impactful. Is, is there any kind of subjects to to your role back then that that you know is is important now? Yeah, I think a lot of the time people think so much about what it means to go up, right, and up in your next step. And obviously, I just want to underline saying there's an immense amount in, of privilege in what I'm saying here, right? Like you need to. Getting increased salary is important because you need to support your fa- family um, and, you know, tons of implicit bias with how promotions work. Just want to caveat those pieces. But I think in general, you know, often people think about the idea of like, how do I get to this next step and how do I move up? And I think I have generally viewed like, what is my next challenge? What is the next thing I want to learn about? What is the next thing I want to fix? Where is the area I want to grow? And that has included taking, you know, parallel moves in an organization. Like, you know, I think it's really hard to change both function and like domain at the same time. So how do I, if I want to increase my understanding of HR, that might mean taking um, a little bit of a lateral move or thinking about taking some, um, like, you know, doing my own skill building in that capacity. Uh, so I think just generally really like, you know, I think this this was the approach I took um, and, and to some degree has been pretty successful is not focusing on sort of like, how do I get to that next step, um, which I think is what a lot of people tend to really focus on. Um, but more like, how do I how do I build my skills and solve real problems for the organization and let that in turn sort of drive my next steps? Yeah, no, I, I, that's great advice, uh, Alex. And, and it, you know, I, I kind of wanted to, to, to finish our conversation here. And again, not that this is a shameless plug, but I'd be curious, um, you know, the the following of the of the Why People podcast and the Boston HR Council is, you know, fifteen hundred or so HR executives, such a, a wider audience, you know, with the with the podcast. Um, as perhaps some of our council members or some of our viewers are thinking about, are considering a municipal people in HR executive role maybe some for the first time, curious about what your guidance or advice would be for someone thinking about taking, you know, taking that leap. Do it. No. Um, (laughs) I, yeah, I mean, obviously that is what I think. I mean, I generally think you can hear my passion and obviously I'm like, my bent is very clear here, but like when I look outside my window, like I literally can count to 10 before the things that happen outside in the real world come across my desk. Like, I mean that so genuinely. It happens all day, every day. And what could be more interesting than that? Um, that said, right, like you have to have a level of grit and determination and honestly, patience um, to realize that like it is a really complex context for good reason. And so that means, you know, the whole like idea of moving fast and breaking things, it's not going to work here because we have to be here for for the people. Um, so I think it is both an incredibly exciting opportunity that I strongly encourage people to to consider, um, but also one that I encourage them to be thoughtful about. Right? If you're if you're if you want to go to a place where there are going to be sort of like quick fixes and easy answers, then then government's probably not for you. Um, you're going to be like, but if you're willing to to roll your sleeves up and and get your hands dirty and deeply understand the context and realize that um, that 
both bold and incremental change can be possible at the same time, then uh, really strongly encourage people to to take a look at municipal government. I think we need to to bring more people bring more people into the fold. Yeah, that's that's great advice, Alex. Um, and and love love the passion behind it. Um, and we'll just finish on one final question. It would not be summer of twenty twenty three if I didn't at least ask AI. Chat GPT, fill in the blank um, of of this kind of next technology. Um, what are you? How are you thinking about it? Yeah, so I'm actually so glad you asked. Um, our absolutely brilliant CIO Santi Garces, um, who um, is now the leader of our technology department, actually wrote an. In- incredible uh, and with co-wrote with a bunch of um, researchers and a bunch of help, um, some guidelines for how to use generative AI in the context of our workplace, which I think has been super and helpful in both sort of eliminating some fear around it, like, you know, where our job's going, et cetera, but also just creating some really good, thoughtful guidelines about how to use bias, about how uh, how to eliminate bias, how to, like what are good use cases for generative AI and how to um, cite when you've used generative AI in your work. So, you know, we think that generative AI does a pretty good first pass at writing a job description, um, a pretty good pa- first pass at writing a scope of work. And we shouldn't shy away from those things. Uh, we're busy people and, and they can provide help. Should they provide your last pass? Should they provide your final pass on those things? Absolutely not. It needs significant human review um, and uh, a lot of thoughtfulness uh, when you're using these tools. Um, so I feel really proud that we've shared that with the entire workforce, um, some of the guidelines around how to use it. Um, I think there there is promise there. Um, you know, do I have some family members who are uh, who are who have some world-ending theories uh, about uh, what generative AI is going to do to the world? Yes. Um, does it sometimes keep me up at night? Sure. Um, but I think, you know, in, in where we are today, there are some some good uses that we can think about responsibly. Awesome. I, I love that, um, Alex. Some some passion behind the technology, but also some um, some some guide guidance and fair warning. Uh, perfect. Perfect spot. Well, well, Alex, thank you so much for, for joining us on the Why People podcast. We're excited. Uh, about your role at the city of Boston and and excited to watch kind of what the future holds for you. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Alex. Let's take a second to think back. Think back.